0: Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell in High Water, my podcast about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon. It's a determined, if dubious, committed, if cuckoo for cocoa puffs, often wrong but rarely in doubt exercise in elevated gas baggery that neither rain nor snow, nor heat nor gloom of night, nor the toxic rantings of the Nuthouse right, a president attempting to invalidate a legitimate election and stage an auto coup, complete with an armed insurrection at the United States Capitol, nor More broadly, and arguably even more disturbingly, the capture of a decent-sized chunk of our political, social, and civic spheres by a cadre of incoherent, insidious, conspiracy-addled, autocracy-craving, authoritarian-worshipping lunatics, hustlers, grifters, nihilists, and nincompoops, none of it, none of it has kept us from our duly sworn duty and obligations, giving you our listeners, a fresh episode of this podcast week after week, after week, after week. Maybe not without fail, because, you know, hashtag epic fail is one of our many mottos around here, but certainly without a pause. We've been doing that for more than two years, haven't had a break. All of which is to say that I am plum shagged out and desperately in need of some r and with the midterm election now comfortably in the rearview mirror and our democracy, amazingly, if I will admit a little unexpectedly, still intact, it seems like a suitable time for the Helen high water home office to give itself a fucking break. And so for the next few weeks, that is exactly what we are going to do. And we'll see you back here on the other side of the holidays. Tanned, rested, refreshed, revitalized, and raring to go. Ready to get back to cranking out more Tasty content. In the meantime, don't despair. We're not leaving you entirely in the lurch for these weeks. To the contrary, every Tuesday morning, per usual, you will find a hopefully unfamiliar episode of the podcast doing the backstroke in your feed, dropped there by the able AI factotums who will be minding the store while we're away. And while these episodes come over the next few weeks may not be fresh or, strictly speaking, new. They will be Piping Hot, a carefully curated series of Hell and High Water Golden Oldies, which those of you who've been around from the start may remember, I hope fondly, and those of you who came along sometime later may never have encountered at all. Given our focus on politics these past few months and our desire not to take a dump on your mood of holiday-inspired good cheer, we've decided these encore presentations will avoid that topic like the plague and focus instead on culture, entertainment, technology, and such with a run of some of our most favorite guests in those realms over the past two years, including this beauty right here, which, whether or not you've heard it before, you will not want to miss. And so with that, we leave it to it with a hearty and heartfelt namaste. Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell in High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. At the start of our last episode, I told you we were about to drop a pair of year-in-review shows looking back on the horrendous Annus Heribolus that was 2020 through the prisms of sports and entertainment. Last week, we gave you that sports-themed episode with our guest Rich Eisen, and if you missed it, I strongly encourage you to stop what you're doing Do not pass go, do not collect 200 smackers and download that puppy and listen to it right now because Rich crushed it and you really do not want to miss it. Then come right back and check out this episode in which we look back on the year in entertainment and in particular how COVID-19 and the upheaval over racial justice and police brutality and the election that made this the final year of Donald Trump's presidency affected movies, TV, and theater with the exact person I most wanted to have this conversation with and that would be Aaron Sorkin.
1: The state of our union is looking up. Uh, I think obviously the big deal is that in uh, about four weeks, Donald Trump will be gone. That was a huge obstacle that needs to be removed. And uh, there's a vaccine. And it's sounding like that vaccine will start to have penetration in the spring. Over the past three
0: decades, Aaron Sorkin has staked a fairly indisputable claim to be America's most renowned and prodigious screen and television writer. His list of movie credits is quite simply stunning. A Few Good Men, Malice, The American President, Charlie Wilson's War, The Social Network, Moneyball, Steve Jobs, Molly's Game, and The Trial of the Chicago 7, along with his uncredited work on the scripts of The Rock, Bullworth, and Enemy of the State. Sorkin's TV credits are fewer, but arguably even more estimable, due to the scope, impact, and staying power of the highlight on that list, The West Wing, which Sorkin both created and for which he wrote every single episode in its first four seasons. The others on that list for the record are Sports Night, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, and The Newsroom. This body of work has earned Sorkin an Oscar, two Golden Globes, and five Primetime Emmys, and doesn't even include the six plays he's written, three of which were staged on Broadway, A Few Good Men, The Farnsworth Invention, and his Tony Award-winning adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird. What makes Sorkin's body of work so impressive, however, isn't merely its scale, popular success, or critical acclaim, but its cultural resonance, and that, in turn, has a lot to do with Sorkin's willingness, nay, eagerness, to take on big topics—politics and government, social media and the tech industry, the news business, the analytics revolution in sports, and with Mockingbird, the problem of race in America—and imbue them with big themes— festoon them with big characters, and infuse them with a trademark sensibility, idealistic, earnest, even romantic, and a rapid-fire verbal style that have come to define the adjective Sorkin-esque, and that drive his detractors quite batty, but that far more people find completely and utterly intoxicating. Sorkin is a huge movie and TV buff, so I was eager to hear what films and series caught his eye and captured his heart this year, but I was even more interested to talk with him about his experiences with three ongoing projects in each of the three mediums where he works. Theater with Mockingbird, TV with the West Wing reunion special that aired on HBO Max in October, and film with The Trial of the Chicago 7, which dropped on Netflix that same month, all of which were directly affected by the parade of horrors we witnessed in 2020. Not surprisingly, Aaron had much to say about all of that and more, so whether or not you're a West Wing fan, although if you're not, I've got to wonder, what the fuck is wrong with you? I am fairly certain you're gonna enjoy this very special Sorkin-esque episode of Hell in High Water.
2: Do you have contempt for your government? I'll tell
1: you, Mr. Schultz, it's nothing compared to the contempt my government has for me. We've heard testimony from 27 witnesses under oath that say you hoped for a confrontation with the police that your plans for the convention were designed specifically to draw the police into a confrontation. Well, if I'd known it was gonna be the first wish of mine that came true, I would've aimed a lot higher. It's a yes or no question. When you came to Chicago, were you hoping for a confrontation with the police? I'm concerned you have to think about it. Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before.
0: So Aaron Sorkin, great to have you here on Hell and High Water. And that was a scene, the climactic scene from your new movie, The Trial of Chicago 7, new-ish movie now. Abby Hoffman on the stand at the end of the movie, being confronted by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, playing the government lawyer, assistant U.S. attorney who's been conducting the trial. I want to talk about that movie a fair amount okay. here, especially in this first part of the podcast. But I, I think I want to start by asking you this. You do TV, you do movies, and you make theater. All three of those things got kind of pretty fucked up this year due to COVID. What's it been like having your three main platforms for expression shut down. You managed to get work done in all three realms in this year, but it's been a tough year for all those industries. What's it like to have been an artist, a writer, a director of all those things in the middle of this pandemic?
1: Well, first, let me be very clear. As difficult as it may have been, and I'll tell you how it was, I believe that most people in the world would happily trade their challenges for mine. So yes, this year, We all found out the hard way that our livelihoods depend entirely on large groups of strangers gathering in rooms. So Broadway shut down March 11th, along with all the other theaters in the country. I had a play that was doing well. The real tragedy there was that there were plays that were in rehearsal, plays that were in previews. They will never come back. To Kill a Mockingbird will come back this fall. You know, movies have been able to, we found a lifeboat with, luxury cabins and a buffet in netflix but plays have nowhere to go and the tough thing about bringing broadway back is that broadway can't fully come back until tourism fully comes back to new york and new york's number one tourist attraction is broadway so you've got to be smart about how you restart all of that we finished chicago 7 our last few weeks of post-production were under COVID restrictions but right. we found that we were able to work remotely. You know, the editor just took all the equipment to his house. Alan Baumgarten was our editor. And we send things back and forth. We mix the sound remotely. We record the score at Abbey Road in London, one musician at a time. So it took longer than usual, but it all mixed together beautifully. And the fear now, uh what the conversation is, is Will people go back to movie theaters? And I am clinging to the belief that they will, that nothing is going to replace the experience of being part of an audience of everybody laughing at the same time, gasping at the same time, crying at the same time, being silent at the same time. People want that. The movies are, are, are what we do on Friday and Saturday nights. The movies are where we go on dates, what we do with our families what we do over the holidays. And like I said, I'm clinging to the optimistic belief uh, that once it's safe, we will go back.
0: Um, so there's a bunch in that and, and uh, I don't want to unpack too much of it, but focusing right now just on the theater real quick, which is To Kill a Mockingbird was set for a long, maybe like epic, historic, one of those long Broadway runs that could have gone on forever, set records. Mm. You know, my friend Jeff Daniels who played Atticus in the first year was, you know, dedicated to the notion he would perform it for a year straight and not miss a performance.
1: He was like, and he did not.
0: And he did not. And you had just switched over to Ed Harris in that role. The last thing I remember reading about it was this incredible story about how Scott Rudin had decided to, to stage for 18,000 high school kids and middle school kids in New York at Madison Square Garden a performance of To Kill a Mockingbird at the end of February. And I remember reading the story in the Washington Post where the theater critic wrote, watching To Kill a Mockingbird with 18,000 teenagers was one of the most profound theater experiences of my life. I don't know if you were there, Aaron, but I'm sure you were involved at least a little bit in making that happen. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it seems, I mean, it's kind of like the epitome in a way of what we lost and what we are going to continue to not have in terms of live performance until we get to the point we can have it again.
1: I was there. And, Uh, right up until the minute that it started, I thought it was going to be a train wreck. I thought it was going to be a very well-intentioned disaster. Uh, And just to be clear uh, for your audience, Scott Rudin, our producer, teamed up with Mayor de Blasio, with the Board of Education, and Jim Dolan and Madison Square Garden. And while we were performing the show at night at the Schubert Theater during the day, An entirely different staging of To Kill a Mockingbird was being rehearsed at a warehouse in Queens. An entirely new set built for it that was essentially the size of a basketball court. An entirely new staging that would now be in the round instead of the proscenium that we had. But I was certain, first of all, you can't do a play for 18,000 people. Second, you know, I used to be a high school student and a middle school student. What are these kids gonna do when they have been let out of school on Wednesday afternoon and the lights go down in Madison Square Garden. I doubt they're gonna be paying attention to this play. Like I said, right up until the minute it started, I thought this is a well-intentioned disaster. And like that New York Post critic that you quoted, it was for me the single most profound experience I've ever had in a theater. These kids were wrapped when they they left that building wanting more they they wanted more theater they wanted more experiences like that but i was just about to give the ice bucket challenge to lin-manuel miranda uh, and tell that you've got to do hamilton for eighteen thousand public school kids at madison square garden this is why you wanted to do theater trust me you're going to get more out of it than they will and they're going to get a lot out of it it was an incredible experience and you're right it happened just a few weeks before the shutdown or really that any of us had heard of COVID. And you're also right that we had been running for 17 months without playing to an empty seat when we shut down. But however much we're suffering, when I say we, I'm talking about the cast, sure. But the crew, front of house, ticket takers, ushers, my old job being a bartender in Broadway theaters, those people are getting hammered. And so are the people who own the pizza places around our theater and the bars and the restaurants around our theater and the hotels where people stay when they're going to Broadway shows. So however bad it is for us, that's nothing compared to what it is for others.
0: Yes. And it's obviously similar as like we talk about Trial of Chicago 7, you know, in the sense that you made the movie, as you described, Uh it was a long process I know because you and I have talked about it before it was a long process that started I think with a conversation with you and Steven Spielberg in like 2006 mm-hmm. and you were I remember in New Jersey shooting it in the fall of 2019 you got it out on Netflix but I know you and given what you just said a second ago about the theatrical experience I, I can't help but wonder whether and again you're gonna say I know it, man we just got we got this out we got it in front of people and we'll talk about it a little bit in a second but Was it not a little frustrating to have that thing go straight to streaming and never have it sit in a movie theater and be experienced the way that movies should be experienced in your view and mine?
1: Of course. I would have loved for it to be in front of an audience. I've never seen it in a movie theater or with an audience. The closest I've come is a sound mixing stage where they have a pretty big screen. Uh, The closest I've come to watching it with an audience was uh, Netflix had a drive-in premiere in the Rose Bowl parking lot where they did a great, great job. And it's nice to hear the horns honking and everything, but it's it's not quite the same. But the fact that we were able to get it out at all and the fact that we were able to get it out this year and before the election uh, is, uh, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to Netflix. Like I said, it's like having a lifeboat come along with luxury cabins. And I'm grateful to Jim Giannopoulos and Paramount for being willing to give it up.
0: But the thing about the movie, there's a much to much to say about it. We could talk about it for a very long time. I'm super interested in that period in history, and it's obviously a, a kind of seminal moment in a lot of ways, both mm-hmm. in terms of cultural politics, left politics, the theater of politics, all the stuff that I love a lot that made my life in a lot of ways about. Yeah, and you do a TV show about it too. Yes, yes, exactly. But I think there's something about it, you know, that obviously what you got that you could never have expected was. The real world intervened in between the time that you wrap the film and when you release the film, we had this wave of protests across the country. And I'm thinking specifically, I watched the movie again for a second time last night. Mm -hmm. The two things that really stuck, stuck, you know, obviously there was a wave of protests, including most notably the crackdown on the peaceful protesters in Lafayette Square by Donald Trump's goons. And I'm watching your film, and first of all, the the riot scenes as you recreated them in Chicago, I know it was a challenge to try to get those done with the scale that one needed to really capture them. But they are brutal and violent in a way that nothing I've ever seen you do before was. I mean, they're brutal scenes, and you hear Abby Hoffman talking about how billy clubs are made of the same Mm -hmm. material as baseball bats, and you hear the crack in the sound design of the billy clubs against people's heads. And then you have Hoffman in that same scene that we played earlier You have Hoffman say this thing about how the institutions of our democracy are wonderful things that right now are populated by terrible people, a very Aaron Sorkin line, but also a line that seemed to me to speak directly to the moment that we live in. So that's a big blob of a question, but I'm just curious as to how you think about the movie that you set out to make and the way in which it changed in some ways and how people would see it given what had happened in the intervening months between when you finished it and put it out.
1: Let me, if you don't mind, back up even more before that. As you said, it it was in 2006, Steven Spielberg asked me to come over to his house on a Saturday morning, which I just want to say is uncommon. I don't (laughs) think Steven Spielberg. And he said he wanted to make a movie about the Chicago 7. I said, that sounds great. I'm in. Uh, Sign me up. Left his house, called my father and asked him who the Chicago 7 were. I was just saying yes to doing a movie with Steven the way literally anyone would. I then had a lot of homework to do. There are a dozen or so good books written about the Chicago 7, some of them by the defendants themselves. There's a 21,000-page trial transcript. But most critically, I got to spend time with Tom Hayden, who passed away a few years ago, but was very much alive at the time. Right. And after the research comes to climbing the walls, period, and pacing around, you still don't know what you're going to write, what this movie is going to look like. It organized itself into three stories that I was going to tell at the same time. One was the courtroom drama. One was the evolution uh, of the final terrible riot. How did what was supposed to be a peaceful protest evolve into such a violent clash with the police and with the National Guard? And then the third was the more personal story between Abby and Tom. That friction, which is a reflection of the friction you see on the right between the, the left and the further left, between people who want incremental change and people who are tired of incremental change and want to see revolution. I I thought it was just a good story to tell that this is a good movie. And then Donald Trump started running for president and there'd be a protester at one of his rallies and he'd get nostalgic about the old days when we used to carry that guy out of here on a stretcher, Mm like to beat the shit out of him, punch him right in the face. And protest was being demonized again. And that was the atmosphere while we were making the film. We thought that at that point last winter, that the movie was plenty relevant then. We didn't need it or wish for it to get more relevant, but obviously it did. In May, with the police killing of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and and Breonna Taylor, protests in Kenosha, in Portland, in Minneapolis, in DC, as you said, being met. Once again, nightsticks and, and tear gas. We couldn't have imagined that We were on this 14-year crash course with events. Lines like the one you just quoted that Abby says on the stand were written before Donald Trump. Uh, I don't want to give away a spoiler, but after what happens to Bobby Seale happens to Bobby Seale, the lawyers approach the bench, and Mark Ryland says, William Kunstler, turns to Bobby and says, can you breathe? That was written beforehand. You know, I've been asked, did I change the script at all to mirror events? And the answer is no. Events changed to mirror the script.
0: It's incredible that you didn't change. There's so much of it that feels so written to the moment. And obviously not to the moment that happened after the movie was locked, but to at least the moment of the Trump era. You know, that Hoffman line feels very much like you. It felt perfectly in character for Abby to say it. It also feels very much like what I imagine... Someone who reveres the institutions of democracy, as I know you do, you've written many love letters to them in film and television and on stage, and I know how you feel about Donald Trump. And so that line feels very much like a line written to say something, not just that fits in 1968, but also that fits very much in the moment
1: that we're currently living in. Yeah, I hear that. And listen, even from the beginning, before Trump, I didn't want the movie to be about 1968. I wanted it to be about today. I would say to all the department heads, all the designers, let's not lean into 1968. Uh, Let's not fill up the frame with peace signs and tie-dyed shirts and psychedelic aesthetic. And with the music, I made it clear we're going to stay away from the 60s protest songbook. A movie like this, before before it even starts, you're already hearing Sympathy for the Devil and Fortunate Son in your head. We're not going to do any of that. It's going to be a Film score. It's going to be an orchestral contemporary film score because I wanted to take away anything that comes between a 2020 audience and this story. And it just again, it's chilling how relevant it became.
0: I do think the movie, I mean, you would never say this, but I will say it, which is that I think the movie is helped by there are movies that get lucky in the sense that events occur and the wheel turns and people are reminded of the fact that protest in America is alive and well and that it meets often with violent opposition and that mm-hmm. this is a long struggle that we are in in our country and people forget about it in good times. And then it, you get reminded of what's at stake uh, in these situations. And when you get reminded a movie like this, it's like, oh, this has been going on for a long time. And it's helpful, I think, to drive that home. I think the movie gains additional resonance and power for what happened in, the, in those intervening months in 2020.
1: Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate
0: that. All right, let's take a break and play a couple ads and sell some soap flicks. And then we'll come back for part two of the podcast with Aaron Sorkin.
2: commandment says honor thy father no it doesn't Toby. it it doesn't listen no if i'm gonna make you sit through this preposterous exercise we're gonna get the names of the damn commandments right okay here we go honor thy father is the third commandment then what's the first commandment i am the lord your god thou shalt worship no other god before me boy those were the days huh (laughs) good afternoon mr president al what do we got here cj well we've got some hot tempers mr president mary Uh, Mr. President, I'm uh, John Van Dyke. Yes. Reverend? Uh, May I ask you a question, sir? Of course. If our children can buy pornography on any street corner for $5, isn't that too high a price to pay for free speech? No. Really? On the other hand, I do think that $5 is too high a price to pay for pornography. Why don't we all sit down? No, let's not, CJ. These people won't be staying that long. May I have some coffee, Mr. Lewis?
0: So, (laughs) so that Aaron Sorkin, you will obviously recognize that it's an incredible, it's one of the great entrances of a character, a beloved American character, Jed Bartlett, making his entrance into the pilot season one, episode one of the West Wing. With I am the Lord your God, and thou shalt put no other gods before me, which is like, if I'm Martin Sheen, I'm like, that is the best entry line. It's right up there with the entrance of David Diggs in the second act of Hamilton as yeah. one of the great entrances that a character makes, As Jefferson comes flouncing down the stairs. Um, as I thought about doing this, talking with you, I think about your oeuvre, and I realize, okay, we need like a six-hour podcast to cover all the stuff I want to talk about, so I'm not going to try to do that. But instead, I want to I do want to just talk about the West Wing, again, partly because it's a thing that got new life in 2020. Mm. You guys went into a theater in LA and staged a version of, of an episode from season two, Hartsfield's Landing, season Great. two, season three. So, just talk a little bit, I guess, about as a starting point here. I mean, this is a series that obviously has an enormous amount of continuing reverence and devotion, and you know, people all over the country watch this thing. You know, the other people who go to sleep watching West Wing episodes, and there's, you know, I know mean, you see, hear it every day. It's a stupid cliched question, but, you know, when you started out down the path of making it and writing those first four seasons that you did, I mean, could you have even vaguely imagined that this thing would have the life that it has now? Because it is, you know, for generations who were not even born at the time that Jed Bartlett was president, they're now watching it like they watch Friends reruns.
1: John, when I was writing the pilot episode of The West Wing, when I was writing episode one, I could never have imagined that there'd be an episode two. (laughs) Shows about politics, shows set in Washington, had never had any success on television, and there was no reason why uh, uh, this one would have. But it got on the air for 13 episodes and then picked up for the back nine and so on. And really, the idea behind it was simple that in popular culture, by and large, our leaders, our elected leaders, have been portrayed either as Machiavellian or as dolts. And tend to write romantically and idealistically, especially if it's about politics and patriotism. And I just thought, well, what if there was a workplace drama in this very interesting workplace where the people who worked there were as competent and dedicated as the doctors and nurses on a hospital show, as the detectives on a cop show, as the lawyers on a legal drama. And people responded to it. And we would get mail, actual mail, and the bulk of the letters would Always begin with somebody self-identifying as a Republican or a conservative, saying, "I know I don't always agree with the opinions that the characters express, but I love the show. I love how dedicated these people are. I love, uh, you know, the vision of patriotism and the idea that we're stronger together than apart."
0: It is, you know, it has been described by many people. Uh, as I said a second ago, love letter to democracy, right? Love letter to democratic institutions. When you write about politics, a lot of it is from that point of view, and I think. You know, that's part of what makes it compelling to a lot of people because it does strip away the cynicism and the skepticism. On the other hand, and I I wonder what you think about it because, of course, it now has detractors, right? Especially after what we've just been through in the last four years where people say, even those who appreciate the performances, which are amazing, what an incredible cast and amazingly directed. this all-star 1927 Yankees of ensemble cast, the direction, the team of writers you had around you, the consultants Mm. who worked on the show. Everything about it. amazing achievement. I would argue the best episodes are as good as anything you've ever written, and you've written some okay. good stuff.
1: <laughs>
0: and yet there are distractors who say naive and sappy and silly in the context of what our actual democratic uh, world is like right now, which is deeply divided and harsh and partisan and bitter and driven by greed and by blindless nihilism on one side increasingly now. So even those who appreciate it as a piece of television sometimes knock Aaron Sorkin for being a little bit... Pie eyed, po faced. I don't know what the right yeah. word is, but how do you um, react to that?
1: Um I uh like I said, I do like to write romantically, idealistically, optimistically. I like writing about heroes who don't wear capes. It just it feels like it's within our grasp, these quixotic things that we want. And as an audience member, I am there for more cynical takes on politics, whether it's Veep or House of Cards. I'm absolutely there for things like game change, which is neither pessimistic, you know, it's neither cynical nor optimistic. It's just reality, really. But like I said, I'm not writing about superheroes. I'm giving mortals the ability to make us feel that way. I don't think that anyone has been led astray by the West Wing, into thinking it's supposed to be this way, but maybe, you know, it's not such a bad idea from time to time to say, why can't it be this way?
0: Well, those of us who know anything about how government actually works, I mean, again, I'll exclude the Trump administration from this comment, but Mm -hmm. people who know anything about how government actually works in past, Republican and Democratic administrations alike were populated by idealistic public servants who, among many other motives, there were many idealistic public servants trying to Uh, make the country better. And to believe otherwise is ridiculously, absurdly, and needlessly cynical. I I will say, you know, one of the things you just mentioned, Game Change, and I think about what ties together a lot of your work. And you see it in the West Wing. I remember a quote of yours at one point where you said, what you were interested in writing about was the two minutes before and the two minutes after what you would see on CNN, Mm -hmm. which is essentially saying, I like BTS. I like behind the scenes, right? And I think about my work, I think about game change, I think about the circus, I think about what's appealing. And the reason I mention it is not to point attention to me, but just to say these works have resonance. Why do they have resonance? They have resonance because people believe that there's a public a facade and then they believe there's another reality behind the scenes. And I think a lot of your work, the West Wing is a great example of it that played out over many years. But I think the thing that it shares in common with a lot of your work, whether you're in the political milieu or the news milieu or the milieu of poker or the milieu of the courtroom drama is you like BTS, right? And find a lot of richness dramatically in the BTS
1: take. Yes, the two minutes before and after what we see on CNN. I I don't know exactly why I'm drawn to that, uh, especially because what I'm drawn to is making up those two minutes. I'm not drawn to it journalistically. It's uh, the difference between a painting and a photograph. And I like doing the painting yes, I'm drawn to behind the scenes, but isn't, and I I'm not trying to be difficult. Yeah. Isn't everything behind the scenes? Well, I,
0: I think this is a difference between fiction and, and nonfiction. I think when I think about the nonfiction that I do, I'm always drawn to behind the scenes. And I guess what I mean by that is, yes, in some sense, everything, when you go explore the inner life of a character or a, a real life person in journalism, you're showing something that's not just the superficial. If it's superficial, why would it be interesting? On the other hand, I do think that some of these works of yours part of what's appealing, that you're instinctually right to think that people, especially in this wised up media age that we live in now, that people think there's always another story behind the first order. There's a deeper story. They want to peel back the onion. They think there is a stage and there's something going on behind it. And part of the reason why your work is resonance, I think your instinct towards that has been profitable. And I don't mean economically, I mean artistically because people find resonance in that. Here's the real story behind the headlines, guys. And I I certainly have seen in my work that that's true. People want to see that.
1: It's everywhere in your work. And, you know, we can just go back to game change as an example. There are moments in game change that were public, that we saw. Um, Katie Couric interview. With Palin. Yes, things like that. And so when you show us the two minutes before and after that, you know, we get to put it together. I, I, I find it very interesting and, and, and inherently dramatic. There are great scenes to be gotten from.
0: As I said a second ago, you went back to the West Wing. You did four seasons. There were three seasons after. I have a question about that, but let me focus on the first question first, which is you came back this fall in October, got the group together under COVID, staged amid great difficulty pulling off something like this in LA, You made an episode out of Hartsfield's Landing. Let's play just a little bit of Hartsfield's Landing right now so Aaron can be reminded of what actually happened in that episode.
1: You're a good father. You don't have to act like it. You're the president. You don't have to act like it. You're a good man. You don't have to act like it. You're not just folks. You're not plain spoken. Do not, do not, do not act like it. I don't want to be killed. They make this election about smart and not. Make it about engaged and not. Qualified and not. Make it about a heavyweight. You're a heavyweight.
0: So that's Toby Ziegler, communications director for Richard Schiff. Thank God Richard Schiff made it through COVID. Big hat tip out to that guy who had COVID recently and got through it. Toby Ziegler, communications director. Jed Bartlett, president of the United States, at a key moment in what he calls the Bartlett psychosis. Mm -hmm. They're analyzing the Bartlett psychosis over chess. Why Hartsfield's Landing as the episode you wanted to to stage uh, a month before election day?
1: Well, the whole thing started smaller and simpler than what it ended up being. As we were talking about at the beginning, All Broadway theaters, Off-Broadway theaters, all theaters across America shut down on March 11th. There is a terrific nonprofit called the Actors Fund, which helps out anyone who works in a theater. And I was asked if I might do something to benefit the Actors Fund. So I got the cast together and said, "Uh, guys, how about if we just do a a Zoom table read uh, of something? And, And it can be a kind of virtual DVD commentary too. You know, we could just stop after each scene and talk about, you know, any memory of shooting and anything like that. And maybe we can get some people to come and they'll donate to the Actors Fund. Then the world changed right under our feet uh, with the police shootings and the protests that followed. And we felt that as worthy an organization as the Actors Fund was, it wasn't quite big enough to meet the moment. Um, We very quickly were able to team up with HBO Max and team up with uh, the organization When We All Vote, Get Out the Vote, Combat Voter Suppression group. HBO Max first made a $1 million donation to that group and paid for us to restage the entire episode as a play, downtown at the Orpheum Theater here in Los Angeles. And then Tommy mm-hmm. Slami, our principal director and my co-executive producer, shot the whole thing in the style of uh, sort of a modern day Playhouse 90 and that in the commercial breaks, during the act breaks where you'd normally see commercials, we would have people just address, try to get people to vote and address different parts of, you know, yes, mail-in voting is safe, uh, that kind of thing. And we did that. And uh, why I chose Hartsfield's Landing? Uh, Because it's an episode that ends up being kind of an ode to voting uh, in the end. The scene that you just played, when I wrote it, It was prior to the 2004 election, George W. Bush running for re-election against John Kerry. For some reason, what was on my mind, though, was Bush-Gore when I was writing that. And we were going through one of those periods where we're still in it, and we've got to get out of it. We've got to grow out of this as a country. We were in an anti-intellectual period. Uh, Better to be somebody that people want to have a beer with. Than somebody with a Harvard degree. So Richard Schiff in that scene is scolding the president of the United States saying, stop acting like you're a good dad. Stop acting like you're a good guy. Stop acting like you're the president. You are these things. You don't have to act like anything at all. And it's okay to be smart. You don't have to be just folks. You can't pull that off.
0: Well, I think I speak for a lot of people who watched it in October. I can't imagine there's a single West Wing fan in America who didn't somehow find a way to get onto HBO Max to be able to see it. And I think I speak for everybody who is a West Wing fan that they looked at it and and were glad to see all those people back together. It was a very warm, lovely experience to, to have them all together again. A lot of them don't seem like they've aged a day.
1: Nobody was happier than we were. We spent a few days together downtown under the strictest COVID protocols you can imagine. We, we were protected from plutonium if it had come in there. If radiation had leaked through the walls, we'd have been protected with the PPE that we had and the testing uh, that we were doing. But everybody fell right back into it. Allison Janney had CJ Craig in her pocket. Martin Sheen, at 80 years old, had Bartlett in his pocket. Uh, all of them. It was a sight to see. Obviously, we missed John Spencer, Um, but uh, it was a great experience. Look, I got to do that, and I got to do the Madison Square Garden uh, (laughs) Mockbird this year. So uh, there was a lot of happiness in my life this year.
0: Amid all this difficulty, a couple of kind of peak life experiences. I have one last question for you about the West Wing before we take another break and then come back to the last part of this. Which is a West Wing question? I mean, I, you know, it's going off Netflix now, and I'm sure someone will get back onto a streaming platform, and people will be able to It'll watch on it the HBO way they Max. do. It'll be on HBO Max. Yeah. Well, thank God for that. So that'll be good for HBO Max. Bad for Netflix. Dumb move, Netflix. But the question I've always wanted to ask you again is a writer's question. You know, you did four years, mm-hmm. and then the show went on for another three years, and with 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 I would say you will not say this because you're a classy dude with mixed success. I would say artistically the fifth season was genuinely problematic. Sixth was a little better. Seventh was better than that, but never as it's People still think there are people who refuse to write about the last three seasons of the West wing because they're not the Sorkin West wing. And I, I guess I'm just curious how you think about that. Like, what is it like to have the degree of ownership you had over the show for right. the first four years? I know you rooted for its success for the last three seasons. You're on good terms with all those people, but what does it feel like to now have this thing exist as a seven season? thing you, which you had mere total control over those first four seasons you wrote every episode I believe yeah. in the first four seasons 80 some odd episodes of the West Wing and then to leave it and have it go on still watched by millions of people but have no connection to it other than a cameo in the final episode <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah it's like this when the press release went out toward the end of season four saying that Tommy and I wouldn't be coming back that was our last season just about an hour or so later I got a call from Larry David that was the first time Larry David had ever called me and he must've got my number from Tommy. That was, that'd be the only way he could have it. Larry David left Seinfeld uh, a couple of seasons before Seinfeld ended. And Larry David was calling to tell me that I can never watch the West wing again. Mm. I said, what are you talking about? (laughs) Watch the West wing again. Uh, It's, you know, it's, it's my show. And these are all my best friends who are working on it. He said, listen, either it's going to be great and you're going to be miserable or it's going to be less than great, and you're going to be miserable. But either way, you're going to be miserable. And I thought, well, you know, Larry, he's kind of professionally miserable, right? So I am going to ignore this advice that he's (laughs) giving me. And I had them send me over episode 501, season five, episode one, VHS tape. I put it in the VCR. After 20 seconds, I just... Like I couldn't even wait to find the remote. I just left at the TV and slammed the power off (laughs) because I don't know whether it was great or less than great, but I felt like I was watching somebody make out with my girlfriend. Donna was saying words written by someone else was just a very strange experience for me. So I haven't seen seasons five, six, and seven. And I know that when I say that publicly, I just hope I'm not hurting the feelings of all of my friends who worked so hard on seasons five, six, and seven, but I think they understand why.
0: <laughs> wow. That is amazing. So you worked on the show as uh, is, is a labor of love, a labor of obsession for four full seasons, wrote every single word and every single script for four full seasons. And then in the last three seasons, you've not seen any of it. That is Kind of incredible on one hand and also totally understandable. I would feel, I think, virtually the same way in that metaphor of the notion of it's like watching someone making out with your girlfriend is like, I can imagine just exactly how that would feel Um, if it was some kind of thing that I'd been involved in. Like, I, you know, dude, I understand. So uh, this seems like a good time for us to take a quick break and uh, put some advertisements into the podcast. We are a business after all here at Helen Highwater. But when we're back, we get a chance to chat with Aaron Sorkin a little bit more, finally get around to his top films and TV shows of the year briefly before he needs to head out. So let's take that break right now and come back with more of Aaron Sorkin on Helen Water*.
2: and be straightforward with you and let you know that we're not anymore
0: what do you mean
2: we're not dating anymore i'm sorry is this a joke no it's not you're breaking up with me you are going to introduce me to people i wouldn't normally have the chance to meet what the what is that supposed to mean wait settle down what is it supposed to mean erica the reason we're able to sit here and drink right now is because he used to sleep with the door guy the door guy his name is bobby i have not slept with the door guy the door guy is a friend of mine and he's a perfectly good class of people and what part of Long Island are you from? Wimbledon? Wait. I'm going back to wait, my door. Wait, wait. Is this real? Yes. Okay, then wait. I apologize, okay? I have to go study. Erica? Yes. I'm sorry. I mean it. I appreciate that, but I have to go study. Come on. You don't have to study. You don't have to study. Let's just talk. I can't. Why? Because it is exhausting. Dating you is like dating a stairmaster. All I meant is that
0: you're- We are back with part three of this episode of Hell in High Water with Aaron Sorkin. And that was a part of the opening kind of epic interpersonal drama scene of the social network, uh, which is just a, you know, a rapid immersion into Sorkin-esque dialogue and a cracking good scene, like one of the more compelling opening scenes in any movie I have ever seen. We will dive into that a little bit more later on uh, before Aaron has to bolt out of here. But uh, since it is the end of the year, and since we promised people a year in review, I'd love Aaron to do a quick recap of. The best TV shows and films uh, that you saw. I know you have to run, but uh, I, well, look, that just means you have to come back to do the podcast again. I would That's love to come back and do the to podcast
1: again. Will you let me ask you a question? Because I heard you say this morning, I'm pretty sure it was this morning on yeah. Morning Joe, you're referring to the Georgia Senate runoff. And you said that you didn't think there was much chance that both Democrats would win. You thought there was a chance that one might, but that is there really a voter who is only voting for one of the Democrats,
0: but who's going to split their vote? I do think that, for one thing, especially as it happens in this race because of the fact that the two Democratic candidates are of different races. Oh, um, okay. And I think there are some voters who will go either direction on that, okay. um, so to speak. I didn't think of that. I would not have necessarily said that under other circumstances. I mean, I think both these races are going to be very close. Uh, and under normal circumstances, I would have said... You know, either Democrats are going to win both or Republicans are going to win both. But given uh, the fact of a white candidate and a black candidate in the state of Georgia, uh, it may very well be that uh, we end up with uh, a split decision, given the complicated racial dynamics of that state and voting in that state. Um, So anyway. Aaron, I know you need to leave soon, so let me uh, let me get back to the question, to the topic at hand. Uh, as I said before, this is our year in review episode uh, about entertainment at the intersection of everything. So I would love to get you to, if you can, just give us a quick glimpse into your top five TV shows and top five movies of this past year.
1: Yeah, sure. All in on The Crown. I've mentioned a few times, Peter Morgan done a phenomenal job. And staying with The Crown, theme, love Queen's Gambit, Scott Frank did uh, a tremendous job with that. I'm not just saying this because uh, Jeremy Strong was in the cast of uh, Chicago 7. Succession is one of the best things you will ever see on television. And Jeremy Strong is giving one of the best performances that you'll ever see on television. My friend David Fincher made Mank. I don't think I have ever seen a more beautiful looking or sounding movie in my life, he's a genius. And Ted Lasso with Jason Sudeikis. It is very funny and really sweet. It's very, very hard to be hip and have heart at the same time. So I really admire shows that can do that. The Office did it, Parks and Rec did it, and Ted Lasso with Jason Sudeikis did it.
0: Those are all television, right? Do you have a a list of films?
1: Hey, uh, Palm Springs was a great surprise. And in a normal year, Palm Springs would have been that sleeper summer hit, you know, that low budget sleeper summer hit that everybody goes nuts for.
0: Not a film I've seen, but I'm, I'm now looking oh, forward to it. Oh, you
1: will like it. you like it very much.
0: I, the other thing I asked you for was your uh, a question I've always wanted to know the answer from you for. I think I may have asked you before and you've ducked the question, so maybe you'll duck it again. Probably. Um, top five political films of all time.
1: Oh, okay. All right, this isn't going to be an order, though, from one to No, 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 no. I'm just no, going to name no, five. No. Okay, ready? Yep, go. The candidate. All the President's Men. The Best Man. This was an HBO movie, but all the way. The LBJ play-turned-HBO movie that Robert Schenck wrote. And The Manchurian Candidate.
0: That's a very strong list. Yeah. That's a good list. I like that list.
1: If you allowed me a sixth...
0: Oh, you can always have a sex.
1: The Contender. Rod Lurie's Oh film. my God, Loved great. The Contender.
0: What a great movie. That's a little bit more of a deep cut for people who don't know it. Yeah, um, for people
1: who don't know it, see it.
0: Joan Allen. a female Allen president. Gary Oldman. Female vice president. Gary Oldman is the Senate majority leader that's and right, Dennis Quaid Bridges is the, pre- the president. Jeff Bridges is the president. That's a great film.
1: It's a great movie. It's a great political movie and there's a small little thriller element that Rod Lurie puts in there that's great.
0: Do you run away from questions when people say, what are the top three Sorkin films of all time?
1: I do. I'm not very comfortable talking about like my own stuff, and then I treat it like they're children where I don't have a favorite.
0: When you think back on the career as a screenwriter, without saying best worst, is there a movie or movies that like stand out in your mind as the moments when you felt like you went from one level to the next level, where you felt like that thing took your skill into a different place and you were like, okay, I broke through here in my mind in terms of my ability to do more deeper, more complex, more powerful, whatever.
1: Yeah you know one of the nice things about being a writer is writers tend to get better as they get older and there have been places where I thought, gee, I don't think I could have written that five, ten years ago. I'd rather not say what those things are but yes. That said, however, I have never written a movie, never written a play, never written an episode of television that I didn't wish I could get back and write again.
0: a <laughs> classic. That's pretty much true for all of us who do this, I believe. Uh-huh. Um, here's my last question for you. I read that you are interested in serial I don't think you were joking, that you're interested in trying to do a sequel of The Social Network. And I will say, for my purposes, to me, that and Moneyball are as good or better than anything you've ever written, in my judgment. Thank you. And I think that what worked with them and you in some way was that you were doing things in a milieu. I know you had done Sports Night, obviously, so Mm -hmm. Moneyball wasn't the first sports thing, but there were things that were not, you know, they were a little bit outside the comfort zone of Aaron Sorkin. And I think that helped. They're both great films. Social Network is as good a piece of writing as I've ever seen in screen. And now I hear you might want to do a, a sequel. And of course, The Company is in a much different place than it was when you did the first movie. So talk about that and I'll let you go.
1: I've just responded to the question a few times, would you ever do a sequel to The Social Network? The reason people are asking is because Facebook, Zuckerberg, they're very much part of our lives now in a kind of sinister way. Uh, So there is more story there. And my response is, I'll bet there's a good story to tell there. And if I ever think of what it is, I, I wouldn't mind, but it's not part of my immediate plans.
0: The thing I read made it seem more like you were like pining to do it and trying to recruit Fincher and trying to get the gang back together. But that's more sort of like a Someone asked you, "Would you do it?" And you were like, "Yeah, sure, why not? Not like yeah, I'm, sure, I'm dying why to do this." Not?
1: And only if David would do it too. So yeah. I can understand how that answer comes out the way you just interpreted. it.
0: <laughs> well, in the all-time list of great pieces of Sorkin writing, I think it's also amazing that film has in in that opening scene, the the breakup scene. I mean, it's got to be in your pantheon of the best scenes you've ever written,
1: right? I'm very proud of the scene. But what's funny is David Fincher telling the story of reading the script and he was reading that first scene and he thought to himself if this girl doesn't tell this guy to fuck off on the next page i'm not reading the rest of the script (laughs) and sure enough he turns the page and Rooney mara has that line um listen you're gonna go
2: through life thinking that girls don't like you because you're a nerd and i want you to know from the bottom of my heart that that won't be true it'll be because you're an asshole
1: um and David said, "Oh, okay,
2: I'm in." <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, that's a very satisfying story to end with. A very satisfying thing to hear from David Fincher. Like you're like, just turn
1: the page, dude. Just turn the page. You're gonna get there. I promise you,
0: man. I promise you. Um, listen, Aaron, thank you for taking the time and pleasure. your willingness to, to come. My pleasure.
1: you again anytime uh, you like.
0: Thank you, my friend. Hell on High Water is a podcast from the Recount and iHeart Radio. Thank you once more to the fabled, fabulous, and extraordinarily excellent Aaron Sorkin for being here with us. If you like the episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a nice rating for us on the Apple Podcast app. Helps people find out what we are doing over here in Hell and High Waterland. I am your host and executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co creator of Hell and High Water. Aliyah Jackson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handled the research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. New to the show. Hi, Stephanie. And Sari Soffer, our producer and Christian Fidel Castro Russell is our executive producer.